welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friends. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and on today's episode, I'm sharing with you a message that I shared at our church's recent women's retreat. Our time together at the retreat was spent learning about the attributes of God. It was such a great weekend together. I started the weekend off sharing about the supremacy, eternality, self-sufficiency, and self-existence of our most awesome God, and I wanted to share what I learned with you all here today. So it's been said that what comes into a person's mind when he or she thinks about God is the most important thing about him or her. When we have a high view of God, it's going to lead to holy living, to worship, to our evangelism and service. So my hope is to just spark within you all today a heart's desire to study more about this wonderful God we love and serve and are known by. So when we gain a better understanding of who God is, we will be better equipped in our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. Every area of our life and worldview is influenced by who we understand God to be, ladies. When we speak of God's attributes, we're talking about those characteristics that help us to understand who He truly is. We're never going to be able to fully grasp the depth of God's character. I get that. But I hope that we can get a bit more of a glimpse in our short time together today. So our closest relationships we have with others comes about because we spend time with them and we learn about them. So the more we learn about a new friend, the easier it is to carry on a relationship with them. What's the same way with God? We need to have an understanding of who God is as he reveals himself to be in his word if our relationship with him is to be one of worship and adoration and reverence and intimacy with him. So my time today is going to be spent diving into the supremacy of God. We're going to talk about what it means that God is supreme and is self-sufficient and is is eternal. We're all familiar with the Westminster Catechism where the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This should be a foremost thought in our minds as Christians in whatever we do. Does this glorify God. And to glorify him is to make him look as good as he is. Imagine if we got this right. Imagine the differences in our marriages, our families, our churches, all our relationships. 1 Corinthians 10.31 comes to mind. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. But how can we bring glory to someone we don't know very much about? So that's the point of our time together today. We're going to highlight, and because we're talking about God, the creator of the universe, we're really going to just scratch the surface of his perfect attributes and nature that exalts him to the highest levels and places in our lives. And why is that? So we can have a better understanding of who he is because, and in light of who he is, then that's going to turn around and come back and look at us and say, what should be our attitude and how should we live before him? Martin Luther was quoted as saying to an acquaintance, your thoughts of God are too human. Well, sadly, to many even professing Christians, 
The God of the Bible is very unknown. So my hope is in our time, the Lord would do a mighty work and open up our eyes to reveal more of himself to us. And as we see more of him, that we would be led to obedience and transformation and worship. And all this can be only by his grace. So I pray that we will not just seek knowledge, but we're going to seek the person of God. So the attributes of God refer to his fundamental, permanent, and unchanging characteristics, who he is. And knowledge of God is the most important knowledge that we can possess. And as Christians, we should devote our lives to knowing God and making him known. How do we begin? With the scriptures. They are the foundation where we need to establish our beliefs and behavior. We are called to love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, I'm emphasizing it there, and strength. And Jen Wilkin reminds us, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. One aspect before we get moving here is to be reminded that the Bible is a book about God, not us. We can too often look to the Bible to just want to find answers to whatever situation we may be dealing with at the moment. But remember, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible reveals and celebrates the character and work of God. Any self-knowledge we gain should come about in relation to our God knowledge. We need to get good at seeing our character in relation to His. So an example would be when we learn that our God is long-suffering or patient, right? It may reveal to us that we're impatient. And in light of that revealed truth, ask ourselves, how does God call me and equip me to live? We can find ourselves trying to determine who we are. What is our identity? Well, the Bible tells us that we're created in the image of God. And to know who we are, we need to know about the one, capital O, whose image we bear. John Calvin said, Man never attains true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. To understand our identity, we need to reevaluate it in light of who God is. So I'm going to share today about the attribute that is essential to have a correct understanding of God. It's God's supremacy. The supremacy means to be superior to all others in authority, power or status. That's God is highest in rank or authority. He is exalted above all creation. There is no one like our God. God has infinitely greater worth than his creatures and his creation combined. He is above all creation and he has no equal. And his great goal in all things is his glory. So I want to look at two passages that share names that are given to God. In the Bible, names have great significance and especially names given to God because they describe who he is and reveal things about his character. Psalm 97.9 says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The name Lord Most High in Hebrew is the name of God we would know as Yahweh, meaning Lord, and Most High as Elion. Elion, or Most High, expresses the extreme sovereignty and majesty of God and his highest preeminence, which just means his superiority, that he surpasses all others. So Psalm 97.9 is simply stating that our God is Most High. He's sovereign and exalted above everything, even the false gods of men. 
Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. His name is holy. God is set apart, separated. God's holiness is more than just his perfection or sinless purity. It is the essence of his otherness, his transcendence. We hear this word transcendence often in reference to God, and to transcend means to exist above and independent from, to rise above, surpass, succeed. So God is above his creation and he's above his creation's corruption. He is transcendent. First Chronicles 29 verse 11 is one of the most beautiful verses that declare the supremacy of God and the word of God. In Chronicles chapter 29, David's reign is coming to an end, and his son Solomon is installed as king. So David is exhorting the people to support Solomon in his task of building the temple for God. And verse 11 here in 1 Chronicles 29 is part of David praying and praising God for who he is. The whole prayer in this chapter is worth your time to read when you get a moment. So 1 Chronicles 29 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So there are six attributes and rights that are given to God in this one verse. And ladies, just as a reference, when I'm working through this, I'm really just utilizing blueletterbible.org. It's free. It's an easy and great study tool that has been a huge help to me. So check that out if you want to dig a little deeper. Um, So the first attribute here that's given to God is his greatness in this verse. God is greater than anything. There's no comparison. One definition of greatness is eminence, which means that God is exalted above all and highly lifted up in rank and excellence. And second was talked about was his power. It refers to his strength, his mighty deeds and acts. Psalm 65, 6 says, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. And the third attribute is glory. This word is translated in Hebrew as beauty or splendor. It's described as the beauty of fine garments or jewels. Paul Washer stated on this verse that the most breathtaking beauty of creation is a dark shadow compared to the one who created it all. The fourth attribute here is victory. There's two definitions used of this word when it's translated from the Hebrew for this verse. It can mean victory or strength, but can, it can also mean someone who is enduring or who is everlasting as our God is. The fifth attribute is his majesty. It's describing God's splendor, his vigor, his excellency. First Chronicles 16.27 says, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are his place. And the sixth attribute is his dominion, Yours, where it says, yours is the kingdom, O Lord. So this is referring to his sovereign rule and reign over all. King Nebuchadnezzar rightly declared of God in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So if we summarize 1 Chronicles 29.11, we've broken it down and looked at each characteristic of God mentioned, and we talked about his greatness, his power, his glory, his victory, his majesty, and his dominion. So God's greatness is incomprehensible, and there's nothing in comparison to him. He's almighty, and all power belongs to him. The power of his creation is derived from him and depends on him. Any glory that we give him with any part of our being, our mouths, our hearts, our lives, is always going to fall short of what he's due. And the victory is his, and he can conquer and subdue all things to himself. He's beautiful in all his majesty. He is the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth, who alone is worthy of our devotion. And God is the rightful and sole owner of all. The heavens and the earth are both made by him and all that is in them, and therefore he has the sole right to them. So 1 Chronicles 29.11 ends with an important statement about God, and you are exalted as head above all. The translation of this text means one who has exalted himself as head above all, as it says. So we may ask ourselves, why is it right for God to exalt himself above all? Well, first off, God is most worthy, as we've just learned about him, to take the highest place over his creation. If God would deny first place above us, he wouldn't be God anymore. And secondly, we need to be so thankful that God rules over us. It's the greatest kindness he could show us. Our God is holy and he's just and he's righteous and he's perfect in all his ways and he's loving and all powerful. Someone must rule creation. And I am so grateful that it's him. So we have just touched literally just touched on the supremacy of God. And I pray that it's going to whet your appetite to learn more about this attribute of his. So in light of what we learned, what should our response be? First off, we need to love God above all else. And Mark 12, 28 through 31 tells us, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So in this passage in Mark, Jesus is quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-9, through 9, which was quoted by every Jew daily, morning and evening, in their prayer time. He's reminding them and us, there is no other God. And if anything takes first place over God in our lives, it's an idol. Mark 12.30 tells us, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So love is more than a feeling. It's a command, but also a privilege. We must make a conscious decision to love God. Love is for the most part an action, not primarily an emotion. So the Greek word for love in this verse is the verb agapeo. We think agape when I say agapeo, but it's translated there agapeo, which speaks of a never-ending, unchanging, unconditional, all-consuming love. This kind of love for God is a choice, a matter of the will driven by obedience and sacrifice. Love leads to a relationship. Jesus personalizes a relationship with the Lord in this verse when he uses the phrase, 
your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Warren Wearsby shares on this verse that Jesus's answer reveals that we are to live not by rules, but by relationships. So love is to be comprehensive or complete. There are four uses of the word all in this verse, right? In reference to heart, soul, mind, and strength, all was used before each one. And it literally means the whole. God's wholehearted love for us cannot be answered with half-hearted commitment from us. So by listing the heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's no area left out, right? We're called to love him with everything we have. Our hearts, God must be first place in our lives, ladies. Our love for him should be genuine. Our soul, our love for God is a passionate, emotional love too. Our minds, our love for God is not mindless. The Christian faith is a thinking faith, and we love him because of who he is and what he has done for us. Our strength, our true love for the Lord is always carried out in our actions. So the Lord is telling us to love him sincerely with our entire being. This will be manifested in our daily lives. We'll love his word, his people, his work, his commandments. We're going to love others as we love ourselves. We will put their interests above our own. God's will must be ahead of mine. Our desire should be to please and honor his name in all things. And another outpouring when we grasp the supremacy of God is in our worship and our adoration and our praise of him. So Psalm 99, one through five tells us, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Again, that was Psalm 99, 1-5. through 5. So we honor temporary earthly kings and rulers. So how much more should we honor the eternal king and Lord of lords? Verse 1 tells us in Psalm 99 that we should tremble. It should be a response of awe of his infinite majesty and greatness. Verse 3 tells us when we praise God, we confess what we already know is true about him, what he has revealed to us about himself. And verse 5, to exalt him means to set apart. When we exalt God, we are confessing that he is above all things. John Calvin tells us, he says, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. I pray that we will continue to search the scriptures so we'll grow in a deeper understanding of God because the more we come to know him, the more we understand how much he is worthy of our worship and we will see him in all his majesty and splendor. And then as we see him, we are also going to see ourselves rightly. We will see how much we are not like God. We will see our sin before him and we'll bring it to him in humble confession. Seeing God rightly humbles us and causes us to submit to him because we know he is for us. It generates awe in us and a desire to walk in the path of wisdom, his wisdom. May our words be that of the psalmist in 145.5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I want to begin as we move forward talking about the eternality of God 
with a little bit of a long quote from Paul Washer, but it's so good. It's from his study guide series on the doctrine of God called Knowing the Living God. And again, I'm always going to link resources and um, anything I mention in the show notes. And if I miss it always and you're looking for something, please remind me, shoot me a note or in the comments or an email. So this is from Paul Washer. He says about the eternality of God, One of the most amazing attributes of God and one of the many that distinguish him from all creation is his eternal existence. He is without beginning and without end. There never was a time when he did not exist and there never will be a time when his existence will cease. He's before all things and will remain after all things have passed away. The eternality of God does not just mean that he has always existed and will exist for an infinite number of years, but it further indicates that he is timeless and ageless, always existing and never changing. No person or created thing shares this attribute with him. We are for a moment, but God is forever. He made us, but no one made him. We depend upon him for our very existence, but he depends upon nothing and no one. Our earthly existence passes away like sand through an hourglass, but he remains. He was God, is God, and will be God forever. Our God is eternal, and we're not. We're subject to limitations of time, and although God's eternality is an incommunicable attribute, and that just means one that God does not share or communicate to others— There will be a time when we see some reflection of God's eternity that as believers, those of us who have repented and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that we'll live with him forever and enjoy eternal life. So let's look together at a couple of scriptures on the names given to God that teach us about his eternality. Exodus 3.14a says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. God's name, I am, expresses clearly his unconditional and independent existence and includes the idea of his continuous presence. God simply is. Unlike us, his creatures, we're bound by time, and our life on this earth is short and fleeting, but our creator is eternal. Everything that exists is dependent on him. Whether or not he's acknowledged as Lord over all, He is, and all existence has always been and will always be dependent upon him. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and they clearly communicate that God is the first and the last. God is unlimited by time. He determines the beginning from the end. He's before all things and will continue on when all things have passed. So we see that God's nature is without beginning or end. It's from everlasting to everlasting, as we see in a favorite psalm of mine, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Henry Morris in the Defender's Study Bible commenting on From Everlasting to Everlasting writes, he says, To the skeptical question as to who made God, the only answer that satisfies all the facts of both science and human reason is that God is from everlasting. He is the creator of time as well as space and all things that exist in time and space. 
This is beyond our mental comprehension, but there's no other rational explanation for our existence. And as I share this next part, I really love this next part. So listen, he says, it is surely compatible with the intuitions of our spiritual comprehension. God satisfies the heart regardless of difficulties conjured in the mind, end quote. So we're limited by time. We only have the days allotted to us on this earth by the Lord. So many times I can be dealing with a difficult situation and I want God to act on it on my timetable. But it's those moments that my focus is on self and not on the God who is eternal and working all things for my good and his glory in his way and on his timetable. So how does the eternality of God affect our life? Well, as humans on this earth, every day is full of surprises. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but while we don't know what may be in the future for us, we know the one, capital O, right, who holds the future, and there's no surprises to God. So I pray that as we see our God is from everlasting to everlasting, that we will rest in his perfect plan for our lives and deal with today, not worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. So may we too be as Moses in Psalm 90 and ask the Lord to help us to number our days so we may get a heart of wisdom, his wisdom, and to walk as it says in Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 tells us wisely making the best use of time because the days are evil. Also, there's a difference between being immortal and being eternal. Man is immortal, that is, his soul will never die, but only God is eternal. God has neither beginning nor end. God existed before the mountains, he gave birth to the mountains. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we become a part of eternity and possess eternal life to live in all eternity with the one who is eternal and created us. So our God is also self-existent and self-sufficient. I was so blessed in my prep time for this session, particularly because I'm in awe of how great our God is. I don't always rightly see him for who he is. I can too easily bring God down to my level and find myself not thinking thoughts of his greatness or his majesty. So it's been a humbling reminder to me that there's no one like him and there can be no comparisons made of him to anyone or anything. A favorite quote of mine from Paul Washers comes to my mind when I think of that. He says, there are no great men or women of God in the scriptures or in church history. There are only weak, sinful, and faithless men and women of a great and merciful God. Our God is truly awesome, and I hope we can see just a bit more of his awesomeness as we finish our time together discussing his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. And these two go hand in hand together. So he talked about his supremacy, which just means that God is superior to all others and his eternality, right? He's without beginning and without end. There was never a time when he did not exist. And now we're going to dive into his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. My oldest granddaughter, Anya, is just great at coming up with these challenging theological questions right before bed. So when she sleeps over, we always get these fun questions as we're tucking in and saying prayers and giving kisses and hugs goodnight. And she'll say... My favorite that she asked is, Nana, who made God? (laughs) That's such a good question, right? And usually Nana says, that's a great question for Papa. It is so hard for us to grasp our minds around the answer, let alone explain it to a six-year-old at bedtime. But God has always been. And this is where his attribute of self-existence is so closely related to his eternality and his self-sufficiency. God needs nothing from us. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. 
We sometimes hear people refer to this as the aseity of God, and it's spelled A-S-E-I-T-Y. It is derived from Latin, and the A in it means from, and the S-E, the C, from, means from, means oneself. So it literally means from oneself. Aseity means there is no other source from oneself. So again, our verse in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, solidifies to us that God's existence is not caused, nor is it dependent on anyone or anything. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Matthew Henry ties these two verses together, Exodus 3.14 and 1 Corinthians 15.10, and he states, he says, the greatest and the best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says absolutely, and it is more than any creature, man, or angel can say, I am that I am. James Montgomery Boyce says, God's self-existence means that he is not answerable to us or to anybody, and we don't like that. We want God to give an account of himself, to defend his actions. Although he sometimes explains things to us, he doesn't have to, and often he does not. God doesn't have to explain himself to anybody, end quote. So Acts 17, 24, 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So those verses remind us and tell us, God doesn't dwell in temples made by men. God isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need us. And that's a truth that sometimes gets twisted in Christianity. Our God is not lonely or needy, and he's not incomplete without us. God created us and the universe to make known his glory and his goodness. John 5 25 verses 25 to 26 tell us, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. In verse 26, it's clear that God is free of dependence on anyone or anything. He has life in himself. In verse 26, Jesus explains why he can impart life to those who hear his voice. It tells us, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. God spoke all life into being. Life is inherent in God, and the father has given the son to have life in himself. So there are two groups of people in that verse there in Acts, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 5, 25 to 26. There's the spiritually dead, and those granted eternal life or the spiritually alive. Jesus has the power to speak speak and bring the dead to life. If you are a new creation in Christ, think 2 Corinthians 5.17, it is because our great God created something where there was nothing. And as Jen Wilkin states it so beautifully in her highly recommended book, None Like Him, she says, Want evidence that God creates something from nothing? Look no further than your salvation. If you are in Christ, 
If you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you are a new creation in Christ because of His work in you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So God speaks and the world comes into existence. God speaks and the dead are brought to life. The new birth brings about repentance and faith. So my hope, ladies, is in this time together that we find ourselves to become better worshipers of the one true God because we know more about him. I hope that we are overcome with his greatness and beauty. He is God and we are not. And one attribute that I'm so grateful for in light of reminding us that our God is supreme and eternal and self-sufficient is that he is accessible. Because of Jesus, we have access to the Father. Because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf, we can have the glorious privilege of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Every moment of our lives is a life of access to him. So I want to close our time with scripture that focuses on the preeminence of Christ and his overall supremacy of all things. I'm going to close with Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This passage calls us back to face the fact of who Jesus is. Simply, he is God. He is in charge of the universe. This passage is an astounding claim. In these brief phrases, the Apostle Paul points out Christ's nature as God, his work as creator, and his continuing relationship to the worlds that he has made. Colossians 1, 15-20 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. My dear friends, God's supremacy is a great comfort to us because we can rest in the knowledge that the eternal one who was from everlasting to everlasting, who holds the past, the present, and future in his hands, holds us in his hands too. Let me close today with prayer, ladies. Dear Lord Jesus, you are most worthy of our adoration, affection, and allegiance. And because of you, Jesus, we don't have to guess what God is like or even worse, create our own image of him. Everything we need to know about God is revealed in and through you. And Lord, there are times when things can seem out of control, but we know that you have the whole world in your hands. Sovereign grace rules. And one day, Lord, all things broken will become made new. So we cry out to you, come Lord Jesus. And it's in your mighty precious name we pray. Amen. Jesus is enough always. Thank you, my friends, for your time today. And as always, the show notes and any resources mentioned will be at the blog over at my little home, thankfulhomemaker.com. And if you want to get started studying the attributes of God on your own, which I'm so hoping this whet your appetite a bit to learn more about the Lord, then I'm going to be sharing lots of resources at the blog in the show notes of this episode to help you get started. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. And my hope always is that Thankful Homemaker will be a resource in talking with other women about how to glorify the Lord in the role that he has called us to as women. And I'd so appreciate if you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen in. It's such a help for other women to find this podcast as a resource too. I so appreciate and I read every review, friends. So thank you for your time in doing that. It is such an encouragement to me. And always my reminder is to God alone be the glory. It is by his grace and goodness only. I thank you so much and have a blessed week, my dear friends.